Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to 88.7 FM from the Richard Philip Cavalero studio here at Hofstra University. It is the Thursday edition, the best edition, of course, of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. We got Luke, we got Ronnie, we got Dallas, we got Jason, all in the, I guess, standard order of the mics today. So how are we doing? I know we do have a guest on the line, so I don't want to keep them waiting too long. Uh, but how are we feeling so far? Feeling pretty good. Got to say, it's a, it's a good morning. We got a lot to get through. Yeah, I agree with Ronnie. A very good morning. Um, very cold outside. Not oh, yeah. a big fan. Not a big fan. Fall's officially here. All we need is the pumpkin spice lattes. Mm-hmm. I know we were discussing that. I know yesterday we had our State of the University of President Poser. That was fun to go and see. I actually went there yesterday. That was a big thing to have. I did wake up this morning, and yes, it was very, very cold. Uh, not really something that we necessarily wanted to have, I guess. But you know what? Fall is in the air as anything. I know Fall Fest is coming up. Are we excited? I know we have some... Uh... I'm very excited because I love Neo. However, the way the weather's turning... Is it's not, not something, good. Not something not to be inspired by. Well, it might be a slip and slide out there. <laughs> hey, you know, hey, that's a new attraction now. They'll, have it, they'll add it for the Fall Fest. <laughs> but any, Dallas, any favorite Neo song? Is there um, one in particular? Miss Independent. Mm, yes, Miss thing. Independent. Certified yeah. banger. Love Miss Independent. I, I like the features, though. I, I like Neo the Give Me Everything. Give the me the Pitbull mm-hmm. ones are too good. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of You, also a very good song. Oh, so sick. So I will sick. Be, I'll oh. be in my room crying to So Sick. It's too good. Definitely has a good ring to it, if anything. Otherwise, getting off of the Neo hype, uh, if you do want to come Saturday, we have Fall Fest. It's showing up. Um, but anyways, we will get to our first story of the day because, like I said, we do have a uh, interviewee on the line and, more importantly, a return interviewee. Great to see somebody coming back to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Uh, but I know, as any of you probably know from the old James Brown song, It's a Man's World, right? Always on that uh, instance over there. But it seems the workforce itself is slowly shifting uh, from that uh, mold over there. As the Pew Research Center has detailed the fact that women now make up a majority of the college-educated workforce in America. So here to talk about this new development is Dr. Richard Fry, a senior researcher from the Pew Research Center. Dr. Fry, thanks for coming back on the show. and We're glad to have you here. You are very welcome. Glad to be back. So we'll just jump right into it for you. So how were you necessarily able to conduct this research, and what did you do to make uh, this statement that you have now? So this uh, statement is basically based on sort of what is considered the official labor force data collected by the U.S. government. Um, On the first Friday of every month, you hear about the national unemployment rate. Well, that is based on a labor force survey that the Census Bureau, along with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, collects every month. And so our statements about the labor force and its characteristics, um, we use sort of the official source for the federal government's picture of the labor force. And you kind of mentioned more about the process of 
how you conduct conduct you kind of mentioned more about the process on how you conducted this research could you kind of dive a little bit more into the current population survey and describe what that um, information really entails for society today yeah sure uh, so each um, month in I'm gonna say around the 15th of the month the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, I'll attribute to them, uh, they uh, survey um, roughly about 60,000 U.S. households, and they are very careful to make it nationally representative of what's called the civilian non-institutional population. And what they have a very detailed series of questions, uh, particularly regarding um, work activity. Were you at work? Were you searching for work? How long have you been searching for work? And so they tried to establish basically who was employed at work at that period of the month. If you weren't at work, um, sort of what has your search activity been? Because there's a certain definition of what it means to be employed or unemployed, I'm sorry, unemployed. And then finally, if you are neither employed nor searching for work, then you are considered um, not in the labor force. And again, of those not in the labor force, they like to know the reasons why. Well, is it because you're pursuing school? Are, do you consider yourself retired? And so part of this monthly survey is a detailed set of questions getting at sort of what your um, job search activity, what your employment is, um, and if not, sort of why you aren't in the labor force. In addition to that, they collect a usual standard set of demographics, you know, uh, the sex of the respondent, the age, how well educated they are. And so it's on this sort of basis that we get an idea each month of who's in the labor force, who's looking for work, um, which groups are looking for work. And this is um, each month we get a detailed, relatively accurate snapshot for the nation as a whole of the nation's labor force. Now, doctor, you explained to us how you were able to conduct this research and gave us a more detailed description of the survey itself. Now, based on what you've seen, uh, why do you think this trend or this specific trend is occurring? Okay, so the, we, I, in 2019, I saw basically that there was in the college educated labor force, that is, those who are working or looking for work, that's the labor force, of those who have at least a bachelor's degree, that's what we mean when we say college educated, you have at least a bachelor's degree. In 2019, there was roughly equal numbers. And so women were not yet a majority. But then we had um, the pandemic. And uh, two, two years ago, in the spring of 2020, you know, the labor force very sharply contracted as a result of the, the, the shutdown due to COVID-19. And so, and as well as that, aside from people losing their jobs, still there was sort of a lot of disruption in terms of childcare, the kids weren't in school. There was many stresses put on um, both mothers and fathers as well in terms of sort of caring for their children and balancing their work lives and their parent, parents. And so the question is, is given that sort of large disruption that occurred in 2020, you know, did that, did that change things? And the, the, what we find, that's the part of this research, 
is that no, at least in terms of sort of this business about women being a majority of the college educated labor force, in spite of 2020 and the disruptions of the pandemic, no, this trend, we saw it coming. And sure enough, actually, in terms of sort of statistical significance, women actually outnumbered men in the fourth quarter of 2019, even before the pandemic, um, and through the pandemic, and now as of the second quarter of 2022, that's the most recent data we have, as of the second quarter of 2022, women have continued now to be a majority. So the pandemic did not disrupt that. Um, there was a, a contraction of the labor force in early 2020, over 2020, the labor force sort of recovered, but throughout the period, women maintained a majority. So they hit this milestone and the pandemic did not upset it. So you brought up the pandemic, and that's actually an almost perfect segue. So in the article, you said that the COVID-19 outbreak affected data collection. For your research, what was the hardest struggle in dealing with the pandemic and trying to conduct everything? Is obviously there was a, it was a pretty tumultuous time and a lot was going on. Yeah. So uh, during both um, 2020 and 2021 as well, um, so the way the Census Bureau actually tends to collect this data each month is um, – there's people coming into the survey, there's people coming out of the survey, but they need to still do somewhat in-person interviews. Well, Census Bureau being able to do in-person interviews um, from March of 2020 all the way through, again, we had sort of a flare-up again in September of 2020, the Census Bureau did not want to um, put their interviewees in harm's way and, you know, similarly, neither did they want to put their respondents in harm's way. And so the number of in-person interviews that they were able to conduct um, significantly dropped. And um, pretty much it's a, as a general statement, all the way from March of 2020 into basically December of 2021, the Census Bureau would, would go out of their way to sort of say, hey, you should be aware that we're having some collection problems. We're not able to do the in-person interviews at the rate we were before the pandemic. And so this may you know, affect the quality of our numbers. Now they had, as of basically January of this year, they concluded that um, the, the restrictions on in-person interviewing were sort of loosened, were no longer as severe and effectively, as of January of 2022, this year, they ceased basically putting out this warning to the public and to researchers regarding their response rates. Um, and so I think the data collection issues for 2022 are not as severe. I don't, cons I don't say to the public and say that the 2022 numbers are being affected by, you know, sort of uh, inadequate response rates, but clearly following their guidance, the 2020 and the 2021 numbers are, were affected by lower response rates than what was true pre-pandemic. So it was basically a difficulty conducting and getting sufficient responses um, to, get, to get an accurate picture. 
If you are just now joining us, my name is Jason, and you are tuned in to the Thursday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. Today, we are joined by Dr. Richard Fry, Senior Researcher at the Pew Research Center, discussing changes in the college-educated workforce. So, Dr. Fry, to continue, what, what would you say was the most, I guess, surprising statistic or maybe, like, startling finding you might have had when you first conducted or found out your data on this research? Um, one of the... One of the reasons, there's, there's various reasons why um, women have overtaken men in the college-educated labor force. And the number in the labor force sort of reflects two things. It reflects the wider sort of population who's getting college degrees, okay? But it also reflects what's called the labor force participation rate. You know, the labor force is those who are either working or searching for work. And so it also reflects how many of the people who have a college degree actually, you know, want a job <laughs> and want to be in the labor force? And presently, the present context as a general statement is in 2022, many employers are having trouble finding workers. There's generally considered what's contributing to the inflation that we are experiencing is many employers are having trouble finding, finding employees. There's generally a labor force shortage. And one of the reasons is partly since the pandemic, the labor force participation rate generally has declined. People are not wanting to work at the level they were before the pandemic. And one of the reasons college-educated women have overtaken college-educated men in numbers is because they're the exception. If we look currently at college-educated women's how many of them are in the labor force? They are participating in the labor force at the same rate as they were in the second quarter of 2019. In other words, you compare them at the same sort of time of the year, and you go pre-pandemic and now what they are now. And the one exception to sort of the general sort of lack of labor force participation that we're experiencing is college-educated women. So other college-educated men, they're not participating like they were pre-pandemic. If we look at less-educated adults, they're not participating at the rate they were pre-pandemic. The one group that has recovered is college-educated women. And so I think what's significant about that is if you think about the pandemic and you think about parents and, you know, sort of all the difficulties that the pandemic imposed on parents in balancing their work lives and childcare. The one thing it apparently did not um, affect is college-educated women are the ones who have recovered. They are back working like they were pre-pandemic. And so I think that's kind of in terms of sort of our current economic difficulties that we face. This is sort of the one finding that says, yeah, there's a labor force shortage, but it's not among the college-educated women. They are the one group that is back in the labor force like they were before the pandemic. As you mentioned, a lot of the ways that this study kind of reflects society today and how um, college-educated women have impacted uh, the workforce and other aspects of society, kind of looking ahead, do you have any topics that you're currently looking to research or analyze in the near future? Um, it's, it's, it's especially like the labor force participation rate. It's, it's the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually does try to project them, but 
But that is kind of a behavioral thing that is it's difficult to make statements about kind of what's going to happen, you know, in the future. But what we do know is kind of the long run trend is, at least in terms of the underlying populations, um, part of the reason women have overtaken men in the college educated labor force is in the wider population. There are many more women who have a college degree than in men. And that's, that's a consequence of sort of a long, long running trend, which I'll quickly, quickly mention. In, you know, in 1960s, um, young women overtook young men on college campuses in terms of college enrollment. Then in 1980, early, early 1980s, I'll say 1983, more bachelor's degrees were awarded to women than men. Then, you know, it takes a, a long time, given the fact that they're the ones that are getting the degrees, it takes a long time before in the whole adult population that there's more college-educated women than college-educated men. It took a while, but in 2007, that was the tipping point. That's when in the wider population, there was now more college-educated women throughout the whole adult population than college-educated men. Well, in terms of the labor force, again, you're only in the labor force if you're working or searching for work. Now we see, finishing this kind of long arc, now we see in terms of actually in the labor force, the workforce, now as of um, 2019, women overtaking men. So this is sort of kind of a culmination, these milestones of what I would say is women's growing education as well with that sort of they're growing. Now they are basically a majority what I will call the higher echelon of the labor market. With a college degree comes higher pay, generally a different set of responsibilities, generally as a general statement, higher cognitive skills as well. And so this is sort of the um, preferred part of the labor market in terms of the set of jobs and occupations. And it's been, this is the culmination of a long, long process, you know, 80 years of sort of how women's role has sort of changing um, in U.S. society. Just getting ready to wrap things up, how can our listeners get in contact with you to learn more about your studies? Oh, they can easily contact me. Very straightforward. My name is Richard Fry, and so my email address is rfry, rfry, the at sign, pewresearch.org. I'm uh, email away and um, happy to um, talk more about this research with anyone who's interested. Thank you so much for your time. We're now going to pivot towards our next topic. What do we have, Dallas? Talking about our second story, kind of about Eric Adams being criticized on both sides of the aisle when it comes to a kind of offhanded joke that he made. Um, during a press conference on Tuesday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams made a joke that didn't quite land for the public. When speaking about humanitarian efforts and resources in place for migrants entering New York City, the mayor suggested that their actions were in line with New York's quote-unquote brand. In a direct quote, Adams said, New York has a brand, and when people see it, it means something. Kansas doesn't have a brand. When you go there, okay, you're from Kansas, but New York has a brand, end quote. Those active on social media were quick to dissect Mayor Adams' comments and question just what in the world he really meant by that statement. This is also not the first time Adams has been unnecessarily critical of flyover in southern states, as during his campaign last year, Adams told a crowd in Harlem that, quote, newcomers to the city should 
city should go back to Iowa and Ohio, according to the New York Times. The main focus of most of Adams' criticism was the fact that he played into the trope of liberal officials looking down those upon in rural, those upon those in rural areas. Liberal activists have also criticized Adams for giving the perfect fuel for right-leaning fire, whereas conservatives have blasted Adams for his mentality towards flyover in rural states like Kansas. I really wanted to get you guys' opinions on these comments because they kind of seem like they came from out of nowhere. I know uh, certainly there was something that came out of nowhere, at least to me, I saw that and I was like, gosh, I mean, I would hope that Kansas has a brand. You know, there's something that they have uh, out there as well. Uh, and certainly I saw it was actually after the comment that Mayor Adams had made. He had pretty much said to the extent that, is, at least for New York's brand, it was diverse, it was compassionate and caring. I guess three things that he thinks Kansas doesn't have. Uh, but granted, it's interesting to see there are changing demographics that are happening in Kansas itself. Apparently in the Newsweek article that you showed before, um, New York actually lost over 300,000 residents, whereas Kansas actually increased by 100,000, which isn't really a lot in Kansas. Kansas terms, like, uh, I guess New York terms, I should say, but in Kansas terms, that's a lot of people, which is good. Uh, and actually, the white populations decreased from 83% to 75%. Uh, so there is changing demographics in there regardless of that. But I think to your flyover states points, a lot of people do tend to overlook that. And I think, like you said, really, it only adds kind of more fuel to the fire, in a sense, for any of that partisanship through there as well. And just going on a surface level, Luke, I agree with all of your points. The comments were absolutely unnecessary. There was no need to attack Kansas of all states or any other state in particular. But building upon this, it does really seem like it's coming from a place of misinformation or coming from a place of bias towards rural and or flyover states. Because as you mentioned with your research, um, with the stats you gave us, there is diversity in these um, areas. People are moving to more rural or um, flyover states and things like that. It also erases all the like culture and history in the states that have previously existed. I personally don't know much about Kansas, but if I was from Kansas, I would be personally offended because you don't you don't seem to know anything about the people there, the culture there, the things that they value. And if this is on the topic of diversity, what about the diverse people who actively live in Kansas or these southern states? You are disregarding them, disregarding their experiences, and acting as though they don't count in terms of who is from Kansas and who is not. And I'll just go on a second point super quick, especially with stuff in Oklahoma. I know I know Black Wall Street was really big in mm -hmm. Tulsa back in the day. Like that's something that definitely gets overlooked, I think, in a lot of times uh, to see that there isn't, I guess, people don't see people at least as for being diverse as having a lot of capital and things like that. But you saw that back in the day, which was obviously taken away by racist white rioters over there trying to say that they didn't have all of that. And I think a lot of the issue is that people just see the flyover states as just, oh, you know, something to pass over and look on and stuff. But there is a lot of economic output through there regardless. Think of the agricultural industry. If you don't have the middle of those states, goodbye to your wheat. If you want, you know, your whole grain bread or whatever, well, too bad, so sad. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to implicate for that when the time comes. So I think a lot of the aspects that we don't necessarily think about or take for granted are stuff that we don't have to worry about because of those flyover states of anything else. Yeah, and honestly, I just have to agree with uh, with Dallas and with you, Luke, on this. I get where he may be coming from in the sense that this is a tough situation, and given that you are welcoming newcomers to the city, you know, let's use this joke to bolster a little pride in the state. But at the end of the day, it's exactly that. They were unnecessary. There's a time and a place for things like that, and I feel given the, you know, 
the seriousness of the situation and how much flack other people in power have gotten regarding their handling of this exact situation, it's it should be easy to realize that this is definitely not the time for that. If you watch the video, what really rubbed me the wrong way was the way that he laughed. And it was just the nature that it, it seems so pretentious and almost holier than thou. New York, obviously, is a mecca of culture and is extremely diverse. But you have to look at some of the issues that New York is facing. You have a brand based on what? Crime? Some of the other recent issues that have come into the forefront. I think that's just really problematic to try to act like New York is so much better when New York has a lot of problems that I think Mayor Adams should be focusing on instead of trying to mock another state. And I'd say, don't forget, oh, I was going to Rana, do you have something? Oh, sorry, Dallas. That was oh, yeah, sorry about that. Something going and just to hop on that, we did talk last week about um, the issues that people who are migrating to certain areas are facing, like the woman who unfortunately uh, committed suicide uh, while she was, like, when she came to this area. There, it's not a perfect world. New York is not a perfect place. There are no perfect places in the country at all. But to be as to feel as though you have the authority to say, our quote-unquote brand is better than yours. It's rude, it's unnecessary, and again, it's making a greater division in the political specter because why are you targeting, again, Kansas of all places, why are you targeting any state when there's not a need to comment on their behavior, there's not a need to comment on the culture around that state. If this was a discussion on um, migration policies, sure, you can comment on how Texas has been handling the situation or Florida has been handling the situation, but that was not the topic at hand, and also it was not the place to have that conversation at all, in my opinion. At least I'll say in terms of, like, New York and the sense of style that it has, it's more of that, like, high-class, ritzy kind of spot. So even, like, opportunities for a lot of people sometimes get shut out. I remember I saw, I don't know if it was a New York Post article or somewhere on the news, they were making all these new, like, high-class, exclusive clubs around the city. And it's like, how do you get in to have this opportunity that people used to have when you go into Ellis Island and you see the Statue of Liberty? Like, my grandfather came through Ellis Island, you know, he loved it when he saw that opportunity come here because there was the American dream in a sense of, you know, if you make it in New York, you make it anywhere. Uh, but it seems that sometimes, at least in nowadays, it's more of, well, if you're not like the real housewives in New York City, you don't really get anywhere after that time, too. And just to hop on that, it really does seem to be an issue of access and opportunity. That's something that does create a lot of division when you come to talk about uh, places like New York and flyover states as well. But if we're talking, if you view his comments from that lens, which you certainly can because he kind of made a bit of a blanket statement, it becomes an issue of like equity. It becomes an issue of like classism and elitism because if you're attributing New York's brand to the opportunities that are around there, it also comes from the amount of like power it has in that sphere. Rural areas do have a bit of a harder time when it comes to access to ba things that we think are basic in s major cities like this, like in terms of like Wi-Fi connection, educational opportunities. It's kind of like we know these things are a disparity. We should do better at bridging that disparity and to feel as though you can make a comment in a way that kind of, I don't want to say in a convoluted way, but in one way or another kind of pokes fun at that disparity. It's not okay to do. This is not the point of, shouldn't be the point of politics, shouldn't be the point of having that amount of power to make statements about areas that you don't seem to know noth anything about and statements that have nothing to really do with you or your job. 
Anyway, I wonder how many times uh, Mayor Adams has kind of been to the flyover states if he's been to Kansas at all. I myself have not been to Kansas. I've been to Missouri, though. That's And, you know, right next door, pretty much. I went to St. Louis over there back in the day. So I've certainly been around areas like that. Like, I know my cousins are around from those areas, so you definitely have that uh, as well, too. Uh, but otherwise, we are going to take a quick break for it. When we come back, we're actually going to go and have an interview, uh, which Ronnie will go and introduce for us when we come back. So we'll see you then. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Well, we're going we're gonna to get straight into it with our next interview. Today, we are joined by a very special, special guest, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the woman-led peace group known as Code Pink, as well as human rights group Global Exchange, Unfreeze Afghanistan, the Alliance for Cuba Engagement and Respect, and Nobel Peace Prize for Cuban Doctors Campaign. She's the author of 10 books, with her most recent work being War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, co-authored by Nicholas J.S. Davis, set to release on November 4th, 2022. Ms. Medea Benjamin, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get straight into it. But before we get into the specifics, could you take uh, some time to explain to our audience what Code Pink is and what it might entail? Uh, Code Pink is a group that started out right after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. And we were against the U.S. going into Afghanistan and Iraq tried to say that war is not the answer, that there were other ways to deal with the attack, bring the individuals who attacked us to justice, uh, and ever since have been calling for negotiations, uh, peace talks when the U.S. has been involved in wars, like in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and other conflicts that have happened over the last 20 years, like the war in Yemen, the war in uh, Libya, and now we have this war in Ukraine. And you mentioned a lot about those other conflicts that you mentioned before when it comes to Yemen and things like that. So how would you say your other books have also impacted other people in the ways that they might have had? Well, it's interesting because when wars begin, uh, people rally around whatever side their government is calling for. So in the beginning, for example, of the Iraq war, uh, we were seen as an American, as uh, fringe, as um, naive, uh, saying that the U.S. should not have attacked to overthrow Saddam Hussein, for example. And then as the wars drag on and more and more people get killed, more destruction, uh, more billions of dollars being poured into these conflicts, people start questioning, is this the right thing to be doing? And then gradually, more and more people come to our side. And so writing these books has been a way to educate people, and particularly young people, which is why I think it's so important to go to universities, to say that war is not the answer. There are other ways to deal with conflicts. So, Ms. Benjamin, looking at your resume in regards to your fight for um, peace across the globe and advocating for those facing conflict across the globe, switching it over to your more upcoming book, What specific aspects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine really drew you to or inspired you to get involved in this specific push for peace? I uh, have been appalled by what the Russians have been doing. They should have never invaded. Uh, This has been a disaster for the people of Ukraine and for the Russian soldiers as well. And I see it now affecting actually the entire world because you know, many of us didn't know before how much grain and fertilizers that region was supplying to the rest of the world. And so it's meant 
and, and of course, energy coming from Russia. So it's meant inflated prices around the world. It's meant um, that people, particularly in North Africa and parts of the Middle East that were dependent upon the grain, have experienced greater degrees of hunger. And um, so I, I think, you know, this is a particularly disastrous war uh, that is causing ripple effects of uh, problems all over the world. We recently had the United Nations meetings, and it's amazing how many uh, countries' uh, presidents got up and said, we must find a negotiated solution because this is affecting our people. And this is in like Africa and Middle East and um, all over and so I was drawn into this to recognizing that um, this is having such a disastrous effect on our entire globe and that there must be ways to find, uh, to get people to the peace table. I also wrote the book to give people a basic understanding of how we got to this point, uh, not just to say um, how the Russians came to this point, but also to say, what was the role of the United States in the West um, that were provocations that led to this? There's been so many unfortunate circumstances that have arisen from this invasion, and obviously it's causing a lot of pain for many. After learning of the initial invasion back in around February, did you know right, right away that this is something you dedicate a book towards? <laughs> That's a good question, and not at all. I started researching and writing articles with my co-author, uh, Nicholas Davies, uh, because we wanted to explain more about the issue of NATO expansion. That's something that I've written on and studied uh, for many years. Um, and uh, so really the beginning were just articles, but then we got a request from my publisher that had published other books I'd written on Saudi Arabia, Iran, drone warfare, and uh, they said, look, this is looking like it's going to be a long war. Um, this is something that really requires people to have a basic primer to understand uh, what, are the, what is the context for this war. And so it was really the call from the publisher that made us write this book. If you're just now joining us, my name is Jason, and you are tuned in to the Thursday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. Today we are joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and author of 10 books, including her newest, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Now, sticking with uh, on the topic of your book, seeing the extensive media coverage on this war and knowing that it was going to get a lot of press and be around for quite some time, what angle did you want to write the book from to go beyond the narrative of what was being shown in the media? Well, I'm a U.S. citizen, and most of my books are being read by people in the U.S. So my premise was that we don't have any leverage uh, really over uh, Putin and the people in power in Russia but we should have leverage over our own government and we should understand better our own government's actions. And so my goal was to uh, look at how the expansion of NATO was uh, part of leading up to this and also the role of the United States in the uprising that happened in 2014 against the Ukrainian government that was in power at that time. And, you know, we in the U.S. are 
always looking at who is interfering in our internal affairs, and we're horrified when we find examples of other countries doing that. But the U.S. has a long and quite sordid history of interference in other affairs. And certainly in the case of the 2014 uh, uprising, the U.S. was very involved. And uh, so we go in several chapters to really uh, play out that story to understand what the level of the U.S. involvement was. Uh, And so those are two particular areas, the expansion of NATO and the 2014, what I call a coup, um, uh, how uh, these led to the 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 uh, invasion in 2022. It's not to justify the invasion, which we call uh, absolutely illegal according to international law, as well as immoral and inhumane. But we have to understand how these things happen in order to try to unravel and see where can the solutions lie. So you mentioned, obviously, a lot of work when it comes to writing your book and finding the material for that. So what would you say is the most startling uh, aspect of your book that readers will find surprising or intriguing, for that matter, on anything for the Russia-Ukraine war? I think it's um, surprising and and intriguing to see the level of U.S. involvement back in 2014 and how starting in 2015, uh, the uh, Ukraine really became a de facto part of NATO, how it was involved in, US, in, in, in uh, military exercises, how the flow of weapons dates back to that. Uh, and another area where I thought was particularly um, in, in, interesting and unfortunate was how when the world community came together back then and said, we've got to find a solution, and came up with what's called the Minsk Agreement. There was Minsk One and Minsk Two. Uh, that these were to set the stage for um, bringing in 1,300 monitors from around Europe, as well as the U.S. and Canada, along the border of the areas that were un- under conflict. Uh, how those agreements were not carried out, and a lot of the blame for that does go to the Ukrainian government that had made commitments under those agreements that they were going to uh, talk with the leaders of the breakaway republics in Donbass, that they were going to uh, give them special autonomy, and that never happened. So I think those parts of the history are important to understand. And as you mentioned, you talk a lot. You talked a lot about history. And as your book is being released this November, what messages or information do you truly hope readers will walk away with after reading *War in Ukraine*? I hope readers will walk away with a sense that this is a conflict that could have and should have been avoided. That there were times, like one month after the invasion where talks were actually happening and it looked like an agreement was possible, and yet there was interference from the U.K. and the U.S. saying, uh, we think that we can keep supplying you with weapons and that instead of an agreement that would uh, mean giving up some parts of your territory, uh, let's go for the whole thing and take back those pieces, and that means the war will keep going. Uh, So I think I I hope they would come away with saying uh, that we can't let this war drag on for 
not only months and months, but for years and years. I hope they would understand with the entire chapter in there about the danger of nuclear war, that this could be a catastrophic expansion um, with a, a nuclear uh, catastrophe, uh, and that we need to pressure the Biden administration and our Congress to be calling for a ceasefire and negotiations instead of just pouring an endless stream of weapons to keep this war going. Uh, again, just such truth that can be said there. And, and there really is no easy way to try to navigate, navigate through this really tough time. But our listeners might want to get involved and maybe even learn more about Code Pink. So how can they get involved and learn more about your organization? Uh, they can go online, go to codepink.org, and see what we're doing. There's also a new coalition called peaceinukraine.org, where they can find the kind of actions that we're taking, trying to influence the media, influence our elected officials, and do public education. So those are two good websites to go to, and all of those have um, their other social media uh, both uh, Facebook, Twitter, and um, uh, Instagram. Thank you so much for your time. That was Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and current co-author of the upcoming book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless, Senseless Conflict, which will be released November 4th, 2022. So we will now transition to a report on Ime Udaka, the Boston Celtics head coach Ime Udaka has been suspended for the entirety of the 2022-2023 NBA basketball season. On Thursday, the Boston Celtics organization suspended their head coach for one full season. This suspension is the result of an investigation that uncovered a consensual extramarital relationship involving Udaka. The relationship involved a team employee and the coach. Udaka is currently engaged with actress Nia Long, but this investigation has certainly brought that into question. Typically, reports of this nature don't result in this kind of penalty. However, because Udaka was having relations with a Celtics employee, this broke Celtics team policy. Not long after the news broke on Thursday, the Celtics made their decision to suspend the coach for one year. They announced that backup coach Joe Mazzala would take their reins and serve as interim coach during the upcoming season. Mazzala himself has been charged with two disorderly conduct charges, one for getting into a scuffle with a Pittsburgh police officer at a Pirates game, and the other for grabbing a woman at a bar. Although he might not seem the perfect candidate for the situation, he publicly acknowledged his mistakes on Monday during a press conference. He focused on using these experiences to learn how to be a better person and how he can try to make a positive impact on the people around him. After losing the NBA Finals to the Golden State Warriors last year, many sports pundits thought coming into this season, Boston had another chance at the title. But in the wake of this news, many have since jumped ship. It's a huge distraction just weeks away from the start of the season. Star players like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have commented how tough this situation has been for the team, even going as far to say it's been hell for us. The players were not made aware of the investigation, nor did they know any of the details involving their coach's actions. They were all just as shocked as the public when the news broke last Thursday. An unfortunate circumstance, to say the least. As if an NBA season wasn't difficult enough, this certainly does not make it any easier. 
I was just curious, what, what's your opinion? It's a pretty tough, su- tough subject, and I know Dallas, obviously, being from Boston, you probably have an opinion. I have a lot of opinions and a lot of feelings. At first, when the news first broke, I was very much concerned and unaware of the details, as we very much still are unaware of most of the details in this situation. But as time has moved on, and you kind of get to seep in probably the severity of what must have happened just because of how long it took the Celtics to make a statement, actions to really be put in place, and the fact that the players aren't aware of what happened and they learned at the same time as we did, I don't want to make any speculations, but I do know that it's a reoccurring thing that we keep seeing in sports where people in positions of power, coaches, players themselves, do things they shouldn't do, and then there are repercussions and consequences. It's kind of a thing that I'm over that like morally speaking I don't get why this keeps happening so prevalently and from the perspective of being a woman who is very involved in sports um seeing stuff like this happen again it is a consensual relationship but there is a certain power dynamic that must be addressed when it comes to a head coach and someone who's a member of the staff or just works at TD Garden or anything like that it is sad to see because it happens across the league, across multiple leagues, and I'm over, respectfully, I'm overseeing it. I'm done with it. I, I just think it's pretty crazy. I think not only on the sports realm, but just entertainment in general. I know recently what has been going on, the people cheating on other people. I go and see, we got Adam Levine. We got the Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde situation. There was Ned Fulmer from the Try Guys, I think, two days ago. So I, I don't know what's going on. Is it like romance year or something? It's the it's cheater season, apparently. This is this is where fall happens, I guess. I, I just think it's interesting how Jason had brought up, at least for the new, uh, the new interim head coach, which already having situations with this as well is like what what's going on you know it's just is this embedded hopefully not embedded within the organization that wouldn't be great uh but you know certainly the aspects i think dallas like you said with sports and just women in sports in general just don't even either get taken seriously enough or get credit for just because of that which i think is sad to see because they tend to get taken advantage of a lot of the times which uh, definitely is not what you need to have in society but sadly is where we are right now uh, but nevertheless something to keep another look out for if anything right do we have any thoughts uh honestly it's just it, it's just shock like why the the question the question is just why because it no matter what you're doing no matter what your job is in or out of the public eye it's unprofessional to do what you di- to do what he did but it's even worse when you have people under you that look to you for not only assistant outside of your job but your when your whole job is centered around leadership to go and do this and now throw a wrench in everybody's season it, not even just the players because now there's other people that are affected have to look for your replacement and have to try to deal with this situation it it's selfish it really is just it, it's it's just selfish that it's all that's all it really is because now you just you really messed up this season for not only the fans but for your players you they, they even said it. it's been hell for us it's not an easy situation for anybody to deal with and i just think it wasn't it, it just it wasn't well thought out obviously yeah and i think just going to a sports aspect of it you're trying to put your team in the best situation to win especially as a coach i understand that this was consensual 
but uh, a relationship that one you already know breaches your terms and agreements with the organization and the fact that you're doing this while your team is doing extremely well making it all the way to an NBA final that is not the way that you're putting your team in a position to win and again as Ronnie said and I think it's such a commendable point it's a it's a position of leadership and how are you setting an example when that's what you're doing with your team and with members of the team and and the organization as a whole And again, just to remind listeners, I am from Boston, so this does hit particularly close to home. And just also, the way it brought to light that there are other issues, well, people are aware that there are other issues in the aspects of sports, but the way it brought to light other issues internally with the Celtics, like the interim coach also having a history of illicit, unbecoming behavior, is something that people are now made aware of, and it's now something maybe across sports we should start considering a little bit more the people who are in positions of power the the things that they did done in their past because it again i don't want to say the past shapes who you are as a human being people can overcome certain things people can grow as human beings but just to be aware of these are the people that we're putting in charge these are the people that we're looking up to this is something that they did and i don't want them to be defined by what they did in the past but it is something that people should be aware of when viewing these people as idols or becoming fans of them. It's definitely interesting to see that, especially when people think of celebrities as like these gods almost, you know, they have their kind of untouchableness, but in the end, they're they're only human, just like everybody else. You know, there's really no set of circumstances on that end. Before we go, I know we do have our Twitter trending uh, specifics over here. I just want to get your takes, at least from what I've seen. Um, so I know the Supreme Court has a really big deal when it comes to recording in the courtroom, uh, but they are going to continue live streaming oral arguments. What do we think anything in particular for that? Or should it be, I guess, for the court itself uh, to have that aspect in any light, I guess you could say? I think for me personally, I think it's a good way to keep record. It might make the job of keeping record keeping easier to have a recording instead of having somebody type it all down. However, in terms of maybe like public access might not be the best option because what happens in a courtroom should have some degree of privacy, especially if you're making um, witness statements or making statements against a defendant or a persecutor. The concept of it possibly becoming some form of like public, the public having access to it does raise some issues for me personally about maybe backlash that victims and or witnesses may face based on the statements that they are making because they do deserve some level of confidentiality and privacy in terms of that. Uh, And the Supreme Court, it's no secret here, they're having a crisis of legitimacy. And I think the American public is very apprehensive and a little bit skeptical at times. And I know that with the uh, monumental road decision this past summer, uh, many, many were angered. And, you know, you're reading a transcript of what the their opinions are. And, and I think for a lot, you know, lead, reading legal jargon might be a little bit tough to understand and understanding the full scope of the case. So I do think that, yes, privacy in the courtroom is important, but perhaps maybe hearing the oral arguments, maybe that could build a little bit more trust and build up some of the, some of the credibility issue the court's been having. But again, We'll, we'll say it's something new. I think to, to kind of piggyback what uh, off what you said, Jason, I think the fact that the Supreme Court is, uh, you know, taking a shot at 
just recording in general, but then taking that aspect into its own hands. Like we want to regulate it, and if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be us. I feel like that is a way of them trying to grab back at that legitimacy. Like we're going to we're going to take full control of the situation and do. We're not going to take it away per se. We're just not going to allow you yourself to do it, so that they have a little bit more control over what is released and what is recorded. Which can go it can go both ways. It both uh, breeds legitimacy and takes away from it because now the public doesn't really know are we hearing everything or are we only hearing what they want us to hear. So it, it can go both ways. But I do think that, you know, I don't want to say it's a step in the right direction, but it, it's a step in and we just don't know which way it's going yet. And final thought before we go on the last topic, uh, Coolio has died. Of course, the ra- the rapper for Gangsta's Paradise, one of my favorite songs, uh, died at the age of 59 uh, today. Do we have any, any thoughts of that nature, anything like that? Um, I grew up listening to Coolio, so it's a very sad thing to hear on the news. I talked to my mom about it a little bit, so that was sad for both of us because she really kind of, her age demographic really grew up with Coolio. That was a big part of her upbringing in like the 90s and 80s. But um, just to keep seeing people die at a fairly young age is something that's really sad. We don't know really the details surrounding his death, but it's a thing that keeps happening and it's a thing that makes me really, really sad seeing people go in the part of your life where you don't expect it to happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, in like in retrospect, fifty is is pretty young. He there is still a lot more that I feel that he could have at least been there to see. Like I know, what one thing I'm I'm happy about is that he was at least alive to witness like a bit of a resurgence because I know a lot a lot of things when uh, when artists die their their songs and they you know the stuff that they put out is a lot more popular. But uh, because of things like you know like TikTok and all the you know um, videos and content going around the community, his song was used actually quite a bit. There was different remixes, you know, being used in in videos, whether it be for comedy or just in music in general. So I'm happy that he was at least there to to witness that before uh, he sadly had to leave us. Gangsta's Paradise, my go-to karaoke song. One of my favorite songs my entire life, an anthem for sure. Um, Really, really unfortunate that this had to happen. Um, But, you know, I I feel like the best way that when people pass is that we honor them. And for sure, if you have a Coolio record or you have it on one of your streaming services, give it a listen because he is one of those once-in-a-generation icons that redefined rap in the 90s. And, Jason, I know you said it was your go-to karaoke song. I actually just pulled it up. We have Gangsta's Paradise. So to end today in honor of Coolio, here is Gangsta's Paradise. We will see you all next Thursday, and we will see you all soon. Have a good one.